Well, good afternoon. It's happy hour today at Culture Uncorked. Welcome everybody. Today we have a very special guest with us. Her name is Andrea Monder, right from our own backyard here in Alberta in Edmonton. And Andrea is the founder of Roar Transitions. And today we're going to be talking about C-suite transitions and the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so welcome Andrea to the show. We appreciate you coming and joining us. I'd love to uh, know a little bit more about you. You know, where'd you grow up? Um, how did you get to be uh, at this level of success? First of all, congratulations, Roar Transitions. I've heard nothing but fantastic things about the company, so I'm very excited to hear more about that and about how you got your name. But first of all, let's get to know you a little bit better. So tell me a little bit more about you, Andrea, where you're born and, and uh, your story. Oh, wow. Well, that was quite an introduction. I'm getting worked up already. And I think we're only in the first uh, 60 seconds here. Um, I just want to say, you know, thank you, first of all, uh, to Lauren and Lisa uh, for this uh, chance to be here with you and to everyone who's uh, online with us. It's um, you know, a complete thrill. And it's an honor uh, to have this conversation over wine this uh, Wednesday afternoon. Um, yeah, my story. Well, you know what? I um, grew up in a little place called Sherwood Park, which is a <laughs> suburb of Edmonton. Back when I was there, uh, we had about 6,000 people. Uh, it's a little bit bigger now. And I had the great fortune of having a couple of uh, parents who married very young uh, and moved into a Keyhole Crescent with seven other families. And so there was a pack of about 20 kids who uh, we... You know, we were so close as neighbors and friends that um, we ended up going on vacations together. We used to play hide and seek in five houses at once. <laughs> and we even have now our own tribe. We're called the Larwoodians and oh, wow. three generations. So I kind of had this idyllic childhood uh, growing up in a smaller community in Alberta. It was fantastic. Um, I went to Tokyo after my undergrad, had the experience of a prairie kid in a very different place, spent most of my career in the early days uh, with numbers, building uh, quantitative models, uh, decision models, that all that kind of exciting stuff. And as I uh, progressed in my career, a couple things happened. One was I started to realize that um, having the right answer was challenging. Um, but ensuring the right things happen was even more challenging and perhaps more important. So my career started to shift towards uh, strategic initiatives. I also started to feel I was working in a big firm, almost like disco lights and a soundtrack um, that I had to figure out. Uh, that was the inner, um, the inner entrepreneur uh, calling to be let out. And so that led me to establishing my practice uh, about 12 years ago, a little bit longer now. And over the course of that practice, working with leaders uh, had the um, experience that, you know, there's great people, great intentions, great organizations who, when there's a changeover in the C-suite, often uh, that doesn't go well. Uh, and the research backs that up with quite a high failure rate. And, and somebody who'd worked in like fractional error rates um, the idea that we could have double digit error rates in the changeover of people uh, just seemed crazy. That was a human system. We have lots of human systems like air traffic control and hospitals that we run with fractional error rates. How are we doing this to great people and organizations? So that got really meaty and interesting and, and called me to action to start a practice where we could help organizations do better. So that's a little story from Sherwood Park to um, roaring ahead today. <laughs> you know, I, I, Andrea, you know, it's so great to have you here. And, you know, I'm uh, fortunate enough to to know you professionally, but also at a personal level, I consider you as one of the finest people that I've ever known. I'm so privileged that you're part of my uh, part of my life and circle of people that I lean on for insight and support and encouragement. And, and um, you know, I'm interested around... Um, as you step back and now you're so heavily involved in a lot of transition, CEO transitions across the country and even at a broader scale, um, you know, while the decision has made when you get there, right, the transition is typically, you're not involved in the choosing of a transition at the C-suite. 
but you're you come in right there to make sure that the return on that massive investment institution make gets a return to what extent do you think though when you get there and understand what's going on that organizations are choosing these c-suite people for reasons of culture impact in addition as part of the decision making is that you see an increase of interest there what's happening as you observe the why the transition has happened yeah thanks for that great question lauren it's um you know we and that introduction as well, like I got a little overheated over there. Thank you for your kind words um, and, sub and support. You better have a glass of wine, Andrea. Yeah. Okay, I think I might have to have two, two sips. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> well, there's a lot of love in this virtual room today. Thank you, Lauren. Um, you know, I, I have been really reflecting on this intersection of culture and transition, you know, by coming into this discussion with you. And I, I do, um, I do believe, based on our experience, there is an escalation of interest in culture uh, in the decision making around transitions, and where we've seen that perhaps um, uh, at a with a bit of nuance here is, um, you know, some individuals who may have been passed over in the past periods and past years um, are being selected or prioritized for their fresh thinking or fresh approach uh, and directly speaking there to culture and leadership of culture of an organization. Um, maybe a relaxing uh, among um, uh, the decision makers to have people um, new to leadership or newer to leadership at those levels um, take the reins and a desire for perhaps like structurally um, have more diversity uh, in the executive suite. So that's, you know, maybe a little wander down that. I do believe that that the desire to influence culture or affect culture as part of those um, transitions is, is a big part of the mix right now. So um, I wanna follow up on this a little bit if you don't mind Lisa, and then I know that you'll bounce in and, uh, but you know what, you know, when you think about it, these decisions, whether small, big, or large companies, institutions, nonprofit or profit, these are massive decisions. Yeah. Talk about the implications when it's done well, and the you know the just the crap and craziness that happens when it's not, because it's kind of like a shitstorm when it does it. Frankly, to use the to be blunt about it, I'm only one sip in, so I can say. <laughs> Yeah, it's um, yeah, it can get very ugly, um, and not you know ugly in a way that it just chews up people's good intentions and great efforts and a way that none of us intended, you know. So yeah. I think kind of like politics, everybody goes in with the best intentions, but it never ends up that way, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so I think that's an important point to make. Is it's often not intentional what the outcome is of the transition is that people are working towards having a great transition but they've neglected some critical critical pieces which creates this this negative impact um you know i think one of those on the leading to the kind of um the difficult ones is a, a almost a fatigue or self-satisfaction around self around selection it is it's such a huge investment of time and, and thoughtfulness to decide who the new leader is going to be. Uh, that often, if it's at a board level, a decision around a CEO, or if it's a you know multifaceted uh, C-suite transition, uh, people are tired. They're just yeah. fatigued by the process. Yeah, uh, and they end that selection, and I call it the selection siesta. Everybody yeah. who's been involved in that needs a break. And uh, they need a four or five or six week break from the intensity of those processes. And for those of us who've been involved in them, they're kind of novels unto themselves. That's true. Or, or serial novels trying to get to that ultimate decision. So that is exactly where transitions require thoughtfulness and engagement is actually in that pause. So, um, you know, those the neglect of that period of time and that decision that you just, you know, you pick somebody they're a rock star, they're an A player, here's your keys, here's your desk, off you go, is where you um, encounter some of those challenges. Now, when they go really well, Lauren, is 
when there's an end-to-end -end consideration um, of what it takes to, to generate success. What does success mean in the transition? What are the expectations um, that are landing into this selection, landing into the transition itself? Who owns that? Um, and who needs to be part of the solution? So for example, there'll be a role at a governance level. There's a role um, involving the CEO, the C-suite, um, you know, the organization's processes, the direct reporting teams. Uh, there's many, many players. So one of the sadnesses I have in the work that I do is that people often think a great transition is a solo act. Like it's, you hired a great person and then we're done, but we often disable um, that person's talents and disable the team's talents by not approaching it uh, with the right levels of thoughtfulness and engagement. So, yeah, so I'm not sure if you want some of those um, road rash incidents, Lauren, or... You know, I, actually, I'd love, I'd, I'd love yeah. for our audience to hear some of those, because like, there are road rash incidents is great. Like, I mean, and maybe you could talk about them, about the people coming in, but unless someone's been walked out of the building, which often doesn't happen, there's a road rash incident on those C-suite members that are leaving as well, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, you know, I, I guess I, I'm always super cautious about... Um, yeah, be careful. I don't want you to... So I'll be careful how I tell the story. Um, yes. But, you know, we had an, in a situation where someone was recruited for a role that was very special. So the organization was making... A, strategic move and they required um, required someone with really strong expertise at scale. And so they were recruiting out of market for this person, which required, um, you know, them to do a sell job. Like you, you gotta, you know, sell this mandate to someone who's coming from a uh, perhaps a bigger role, you know, uh, bigger achievements to come and play in your, in your space and yeah. make that leap. And so they did a great sell job. They got the person. Um, but when the person arrived, there was so much dissonance between what they had been sold of the vision right. and what you could actually execute on with the teams. Like it was just, it was so wide. Like people recognize that there's going to be work to be done. But within six months, that person exited because the, the gap was just not uh, consistent with what the conversations had been through the recruitment process. So expectations were very divided uh, for that incoming uh, executive. And these are, you know, very thoughtful people who'd worked hard to get to that spot. And all people, everyone was disappointed. That was the decision that was made because really good intentions there to make it all work. So yeah. Andrew, do you think that perhaps, you know, you talked a little bit previously about burnout at, at the initiation stage of determining, you know, who that CEO is going to be. So in this particular road rash case, and Frank would like to know what road rash means. So we'll address <laughs> that as well as do you think if it would have been if the burnout wouldn't happen at the beginning of the of the process that that road rash might have less likely have occurred. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, we want to, uh, through a transition process that we advocate for and, and work on is that we're trying to um, prevent those kinds of um, unexpected, uh, you know, collateral damage that's just not necessary. Um, you know, it's loss of momentum. Sometimes it's a dent to reputation of the individual coming in or the teams around them. Uh, sometimes that's stalling out on strategic initiatives that can't get stalled out. Um, and it's, you know, at the end of the day, um, transitions really do have a material measurable effect on performance. Uh, so it's, uh, it's about people and it's about the organization and it's about performance. So let's talk a little bit more about that when you talk about a measurable effect on the, on the culture, on the people. Can you explain to us a little bit more in depth about what you mean by that? Yeah, sure. So um, maybe I'll take it down to an incoming executive and then I'll I'll bring it up to a bigger lens. Uh, we uh, were working with um, uh, a CFO who'd had a global career and we'd been hired by the CEO to um, support that transition. And the gentleman who was coming in, you know, it's not his first rodeo. <laughs> not his second or maybe his 12th like <laughs> he knows what he's doing 
yeah. um, works had worked in three countries and uh, um, you know was extremely gracious to uh, to welcome us into his um, his transition. And at the end of the um, our work together, like I asked him, <laughs> okay, like give me the straight goods. Like we're we we have we're friends. I can take the heat here. You know, I want you to tell me the truth. Like, did we add value um, to you um, specifically in this transition? Yeah. Um, what was it, and uh, how did we help you? And he said, "You got me um, to where I would be in half the time." Wow. So I was ready three months sooner for um, the board meetings than I would have been in any other scenario. So if you think about a CFO's command of decision-making for an organization and the ability to have that um, uh, ability to execute at kind of your full level, uh, a full three months sooner, you know, that's to me, that's a huge, um, huge signal and a huge measurable effect that we can, we can speak to. Now, if we go to a broader lens within organizations, you know, when transitions don't go well, it affects morale, uh, engagement scores, uh, you see collateral exits, um, you see dips in performance, so, uh, and you see the reverse when transitions go well. You know, the reality is, is that when these decisions are made, a whole bunch of the organization are taking bets around the success of that incumbent. I mean, it just is, you know, I mean, it may happen and literally that direct, you know, around the virtual water cooler. Hey, do you think so-and-so is going to make it? How do you think they're going to do? Uh, you know, you know, some people uh, and, and how you land. And if you can do it earlier, you can embrace and the organization embraces you. It's such a big difference. But if you spend a year trying to prove your value. Or trying to overcome it, it's a that is a massive distraction. And I agree with you. A lot of times, it's because of people think the work is done at the at the recruitment level, at the at the selection level, and but the work is just beginning. beginning. Why yeah. would anybody say no to this? <laughs> yeah, it's um. I mean, your fees are high, but they're not that high. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Lauren. <laughs> yeah, it's uh. It is really compelling, you know, when we get inside the transitions with folks. One of, if I could speak to one of your comments there around the water cooler talk, yeah. uh, I have a really strong opinion about the water cooler talk, <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I think that stuff we need to catch as part of a transition. What happens is there's been a cohort of people, rightly so, moving the recruitment forward, and the full organization isn't informed of that for all the right reasons. You know, things uh, develop over time and information can be released as decisions are made and all of that. But um, transitions affect people. They affect people in lots of ways and they have fantastic perspectives on how to support that transition and make it successful. And so if we, as part of the work that we do, we want to hear those recommendations and convert the bets uh, Lauren, that you're hearing at the water cooler talk about how people will perform or whether they're going to do it, convert those bets into accountability because everyone is part of the solution. It's not a solo act. And so folks that are watching from the sidelines, we want them on the field and we want them telling us, you know, what do you recommend? What's priority? What needs more attention at this time? And get that flow of information um, feeding into constructive activity into the transition. Um, uh, yeah, and so you can't, of course, not all water to cooler talk will go away, but we want to grab that good stuff that really can contribute to the transition. So I want to share a personal um, experience around this. So, um, and I think uh, Moet and ATB would be okay about me sharing it, um, that I was uh, responsible to uh, recruit our chief financial officer. We spent a year trying to find this person. And uh, the board was getting really frustrated, you can imagine. Um, and, you know, we finally landed on this person and this person came on. And then Dave and I decided to use you, Andrea, and, um, and your partner at that time, Jane. And, and so I'm the CPO. And, I, I, we, and Dave and I got the reason why we needed to really make sure that this guy landed fast and hard and really had an impact. 
The end with that, though, as a CPO, I did hear a whisper or two around, why are you spending money investing in these guys? Isn't that part of your job as the chief people officer to manage these onboarding uh, experiences? And, you know, I, I, you know, I was comfortable taking that on, but don't you think that that happens sometime where, you know, HR leaders are reluctant, they somehow see you as maybe potentially threatening as opposed to, or the rest of the organization goes, isn't that the job of HR to do it? How do you react to that and navigate that? Yeah, it's real. That's real. Um, that fear that it's duplication or it's, interfering with uh, the great work that the HR leaders do. And in practice, when we have a chance to sit down and, and work closely with people and talk about it, the advantage of having a third party that comes in with special, like special ops, special talents, uh, to come in for a set period of time and exit, uh, we don't stay past about three or four months into the person's tenure. We, we will check in later as desired, but that has real appeal um, for the HR leaders that they can entrust a third party to take that on and have the sole focus. Um, and part of the reason that's attractive is the particularly at a CEO level, um, they, they typically don't happen frequently. And so the institutional knowledge around a CEO transition um, and, and some of the CEO C-suite transitions, there aren't a lot of folks who've worked on them so there's a sense of like right. gaps and, and yeah. soft spots and feeling yeah. like, you know, if yeah. we can augment our team, yeah. um, then that's a great relief to our people. And, you know, in our case as a firm, we're so respectful of that is that we, we want to be like the putty in between uh, <laughs> and not step uh, in the foreground where that capacity and that strength already is in the organization. And uh, we're happy to step back or step forward, however, you know, suits the uh, the transition. So those types of uh, comments help soothe that. Um, but certainly, there is always that um, that early feeling that, well, don't we do that? And then when we get into the conversation, there's this realization: well, actually, we don't. You know, we do pieces of it, or we have somebody who worked on a part of it. But have we let it end to end like this? And the answer is more often than not, no, we haven't. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Frank Doyle's on. Frank, thank you for joining us. And he asked this phenomenal question. And I know I've seen this as real. And you see, he goes, and you see often brings change and fear, right? Everybody knows the stats that over X number of months, X number of people are changed out. And he goes, how do you shift that from change to excitement? Hell of a question and a real challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, I don't want to dodge this one. I'm just really curious what you think, Lauren, on that first. Will you go first? And then can I follow yeah, up? Yeah, well, you know, my I think my belief is the um is that uh this is where the transparency is really important. And I think that transparency has to happen at the C suite level and all the way through. And people have to understand why uh why that CEO's come on. You know, what was the key, you know. And what was the key decision for bringing this person on? And because everybody's asking that question anyway. So I think when you declare why, and the CEO has a chance, the new CEO has a chance to declare why they're there and what their aspiration is, and their chance to really be clear about that, then it gives everybody a chance to actively determine how they're going to be part of that. Mm -hmm. And um, and then essentially, if you're working for the individual or somewhere down the line, doesn't matter where, you're going to have to make an active choice around how much you know you're going to show up to be part of that. And the reality is, is if you don't, yeah, there's risk. And I think if you and I think part of the transition, Andrea, is that right from the board, right from the governance, right from the board, the board level down. That because the board is responsible for that CEO decision, that message has to be clear. It cannot be sugarcoated, but it has to be presented in an aspirational kind of way for people to have a chance, not just I'm here to clean up or I'm here to it's I'm here to create this to, to add to this purpose or to this vision. And then let's, you know, and then I, I that's the way I think about it. How would you approach it and how do you make that? I know a little bit about what you do, but how would you add or change a perspective there? 
Yeah, I, I think you're bang on, Lauren. You know, that transparency um, is so, so vitally important on the authenticity of it. Um, you know, if I can take it into COVID a bit. Yeah. Uh, you know, with the folks that have been starting their roles um, during the this period of distancing, I would say that this, you know, change in fear is, um, it's fear of the change. It's it's underscored because that connection with others is hard to achieve. You know, you're an incoming leader and you can't walk the halls and see groups of people um, interacting with each other and, you know, get a read on that. And so what I would say is right now um, to, um, to the question um, that Frank asked that, you know, it's very tricky right now uh, to try and allay those fears and, and create that deep connection with the incoming leader that people you know, feel they understand who that person is, why they're there, uh, and what their, as you say, what their, um, the aspiration is for the organization and their leadership. Yeah, so we got great uh, questions from the audience. Uh, Toya's, uh, welcome Toya. She knows that she's um, in a government where the commanding officer is considered the C-suite. Um, so with frequent transitions across military leadership, how do you get traction quickly but smartly? And no kidding, in, in the military environment, right? There's so much movement all the time. In some ways, they're, they're the best places to really understand rapid transition. But what insight do you have to that smartly, quickly? Yeah, it's a, it's a great, great question. And I would just put one caveat around it is every transition is different. Every leader is different. Every dynamic is different. So. I would say, um, in general, uh, we help um, advance the transition by understanding what's on the minds of the key, of the people who are key to the success of the role as soon as possible. So even if it's possible to start that insight uh, into what's on people's minds, like legitimately on people's minds around the transition sooner, um, that enables the transition. So sometimes folks walk in and they start those conversations maybe a little bit too late and uh, don't accelerate them right in the early days. And then so they're being quite reactive at six weeks out or two months out or three months out and uh, prioritizing right in the early days, who are those critical relationships that you need to connect with sooner and um, making sure that you have their allyship and that you really understand what they what they see as crucial to the transition uh, enable a, a quicker transition so I know that you I know that you uh, and I've seen your models and I know that you have got this amazing gift about having both sides of your brain being extra large quantitatively and quality I don't know how the hell you do it uh, but uh, However, Paul with a very big head. <laughs> I'm but, already feeling my my brain hit my my bone here. <laughs> but I but so much. Look, when you're dealing with the C-suite, let's let's just acknowledge that ego plays a big role in this thing, right? So, you know, a lot of times, and I want to talk about the leaving now because I've got this view that we don't deal with leaving as well as we should. Um, so I, so I've been working my tail off heart and soul and, you know, it comes out a little bit more diplomatically than this, but quote, I, you know, I'm a, whatever you pick, whatever C-suite you want. I sit down with my CEO and my CEO says something like this, <laughs> you know, you've done a wonderful job. We love you. And you're going right now, you know, there's an and there. <laughs> and the end is we decided to make a change. So you pick the amount of time, one year, 10 years, often it's, you know, and then you go, oh my goodness. And then there's all this kind of smoke and mirrors around that person leaving. You know, why and, and how would you, how would we change that leaving? If you had a magic wand around transitions, how would we make that leaving more honest and yet more dignified? 
Yeah, I'm going to take a moment here, Lauren, because you're I'm smiling, but you're pulling on the heartstrings here. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's been my experience that when you say, uh, you know, C-suite senior executives give heart and soul uh, to their work, they absolutely do. They're all in in every way. And um, it is absolutely true that I think that, again, to the point that organizations don't intend this, people don't intend this, but the door does tend to hit them on the way out. Mm-hmm. And it's a very unfortunate, um, unfortunate thing. I, I do believe, again, I'm kind of on a theme here, but when you consider what is um, an act of respect uh, for that leader, as well as what enables the next leader who takes their position, there's a whole bunch of aspects to that. The team uh, needs to let go, needs to recognize and support the leader that got them where they are. What's the plan for that? How will that yeah. be undertaken and when? Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to handover, like it's soup to nuts, right? From one leader to the next. I mean, and what I mean by soup to nuts is, um, I don't know which which order I'll put these in, but uh, in some cases you have overlap careful, thoughtful, cordial overlap. That's about learning and passing of knowledge. Those are very unique situations Um, all the way to where you never meet your successor. Um, Sometimes there's a a letter in between or emails, Um, but when there's deep regard for the talent and the contribution of the outgoing person and a desire to lift that up, elevate that, and have that retained by the team and by the organization, the solutions start to come. When we fall in love with this um, rock star, A player, leader, it's a solo act, you know, we've hired somebody to come in and somebody's going, we lose sight of that. And we move on to the next person and everybody's kind of rushing ahead to get on the next wave. Uh, And I think that's where we get that disconnect. So to me, it's a really big part of a successful transition of an incoming person is the thoughtful, um, well-considered approach to the outgoing person. And that's what essential. If I have one thing that I wanna, <laughs> I wanna contribute, one more thing if I just have a chance to, is to make leaving more dignified and more open and transparent, right yeah. top the bar. And I think it has to happen at the top because I've seen some of these leaders that have frankly been desensitized to leave people leaving at other levels and it happens to them and they go through a massive emotional reaction. I'm going, well, right. You know, but they were like almost, you know, desensitized to it happening from the thousand people that got furloughed or something. And so I remember working for a Fortune 50 company and the guy who ran the biggest section of the company had 20,000 people reporting to him. The board made a decision to move him out into international. And frankly, he went from one of the biggest jobs to frankly, he was put on the sidelines. They didn't have to leave. But I went and had lunch with him the morning the announcement came out. And his comment to me was that his email stopped. At that time, it was primarily email driven. Yes. His emails went from literally hundreds of emails a day to nothing. Yeah. The organization just, you know, is very sensitive. It's it's unbelievable how it knows, you know, and that's why leaders are so afraid to become dead ducks, right? They don't want to say anything because they're afraid the organization will walk away from them. Do you have any insights on that or am I just kind of just reminiscing like an old guy or something? No, it's it's uh, it's something that uh, uh, compels me to the work that we do. Um, it and if I can turn it a little bit towards that outgoing leader, um, it's physical. Like it's not just the email stops, but the body is so trained and to be you know making hundreds of decisions a day, super primed to be at at the ready and go for you know. 12, 15 hours a day or more traveling to before COVID traveling all over. Um, The change from being in a a really heavy, intense role to not being in that role is like falling off a cliff. And um, 
I do think that there are lots of things that on the outgoing leader side, they can do to help soften that effect on them. Um, and uh, the organization itself, you, you know, has a responsibility, I think, to um, to follow on after with folks and uh, and make sure that that um, process has gone well for them. Uh, we ask a lot of people and uh, it's pretty cold, abrupt. Um, for some folks that are leaving. So I'm I'm with you there. So I'm, so Lisa, I know you want to jump in. I just wanted to follow up on one more thing. I'm a frontline person and I'm making, you pick the number. And the C-suite feels like miles away from me. And those guys are making, men and women, typically guys, unfortunately, but it's more women, hopefully, as we go forward, are making numbers that are millions, frankly. Why should I give a damn <laughs> that you're there helping? Like, yeah. why do I, why do I, you're going to ask me to feel sorry for these guys are making that much money and they need someone to help them with their uh, transition. What the hell? Yeah, for what sure. It's a fair, it's a fair challenge. Um, I would, you know, say that um, the scope of the role and the, the influence that those positions have, the effect is across the organization. And so when you're working in a particular role and in a particular location, your, your, your impact, of course, the human impact is really significant of change, starting a new job or leaving, but the, the scope of effect isn't across the entire organization. And so the, um, where this becomes really important for somebody um, on the front line is they often can feel the difference in leadership and they're left out of the loop. They don't know what's happening. Um, right. There's a lot of uncertainty. And so transitions help um, aid that communication, help make sense of what's happening, um, ensure that people uh, understand what's happening with the transition where the organization is going and makes it a um, more reliable experience so lots of people have had their chains yanked around when there's leadership change and it comes off as, I don't know what's happening. You know, it's constant churn. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have a job. And so, you know, an investment in transition uh, support is an investment in them being able to, to do their jobs well and look to the future uh, and have confidence in their organization. Toya's asking, how do you manage the wave when there's no transition? I'm sorry. How do you how do you manage the wave when there's no transition? And I need a little help there with uh, what the wave might be. I think she's probably referring to like when there is no transition, somebody leaves. What happens next? Wave what the wave anyway. So when someone leaves, but no one comes in, or there's yeah. no transition. There's no trans. There's no, no, no plan. Transition. There's a wave, but there's no plan transition. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, we, uh, in our experience, we've come in post transition. So as far as six months or nine months or a year later. So the effect to me of a poorly managed transition, it's it's still, the wave still happens. Yeah. Um, and you can address those, um, address those issues later, but I don't think they go away. It's kind of like pay me now, pay me later, the old Midas commercial, right? Yeah. It's going to be twice as expensive though. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, there's an accumulated effect, time effect of of waiting. So it looks like uh, Frank's got another comment here. Everyone looks to the C-suite for direction and leadership. Shifting leadership impacts every single position, including the mailroom was often the most fearful. Yeah, thank you, Frank. Thanks for your conversations, Lisa. I know you're kind of. I've been hogging the airwaves here. Jump in. Oh, it's all, it's all good. I uh, was just going to make the comment about leaving. So when, when somebody leaves and the transition is not done well, when the new CEO comes in, now all of a sudden not only does the, need, the new CEO have to inspire the team and create great culture and hopefully there's a vision and a mission and there's values instilled within the organization, but what happens when there isn't? And now all of a sudden not only do they have a job to do, but it now becomes astronomical job because they're not only dealing with what they need to do moving forward, but what's happened previously. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And it's about, you know, it comes down to it. It's about honoring and respecting what happened before. 
before the leadership. And when I think there's some missteps when people come in and they, um, they give that short shrift, they gloss over that uh, without kind of an authentic nod and appreciation for what's come before. Uh, the teams know the difference. The direct reports know the difference between an authentic regard and respect for the past leadership and uh, uh, folks who kind of jump the gun and, and want to take the stage or take the wheel maybe too soon in that release of their past leader. So there's a, there is a release, there is a letting go. But if you try and cut that off with teams in a way that's not authentic or respectful, they'll hold you back. Yeah. Thank you, Adam. This, that's a really good point. Every leader should repair the replacement intentionally. Otherwise, they are not the leader. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, as much as you hope that they would do that and they're responsible to help with it, it's a lot. It's a weird kind of a dynamics that goes on there. Uh, it's not that every outgoing leader wants the other leader behind them to not do anything but greatness, but it's sometimes they just don't behave that way. And, uh, um, I don't know. Yeah. So, you know, anyway, that's a, that's an insightful comment. I completely agree with that comment. Can you give us a look? Part of this is a little bit behind the scenes. I know you want to be careful because, um, <laughs> and I agree with you, Adam, from the moment they announced they should prepare for the next one. Completely agree. Absolutely. Um, the, and by the way, the board has a responsibility on this. That's their job to make sure that's been happening. And, uh, Toya says, that's been my experience. Gloss over as a subordinate, but I always want to support the person fully. Yeah. Uh, the, the, give us a little back room view of some of the simple, simplest, crazy stuff. that is so minutiae, you wouldn't think it'd make a difference, but it ends up being the big stuff. I'm talking about the CEO takes the plant out of the office or the crazy <laughs> stuff that is a symbol, symbol of the emotional <laughs> craziness that goes on. Oh, yeah. You probably yeah. have a few stories, Andrea. Yeah. Without, you know, I know you have to be careful because you know people might read between the lines. But yeah, thanks, Lauren. It's um, you know, it's just this is bloody hard on people. It's just hard on them. And so what we experience in our work is that, with a couple of exceptions, just a couple of exceptions. <laughs> we anticipate that um, with an uh, outgoing uh, C-suite um, transition, they will act out of character at some point, unpredictably, um, in a way that is completely, you don't see coming. So for example, we had one uh, CEO who was, had like military precision around punctuality and scheduling. Like that was his, like a hallmark of his leadership was just how highly tuned his time machine was around how he ran his, uh, his leadership. And he went AWOL for two days where he went off schedule and his office staff and his wife didn't know where he was. And this was before the retirement party. So they were trying to find him three days before the retirement party to see if he was coming. Now, if you knew the man, you this is something you would never, ever expect he would do. It just was completely off of his um, character. We had another gentleman who, you know, you would ask to read bedtime stories to your children or your grandchildren, the most lovely and warm hearted, uh, kind, soft-spoken guy, you know, tough, tough guy. And he was throwing um, golf clubs on the golf course. Uh, he hadn't done that as, you know, a child or a teenager, it was completely out of character. A, a woman who was the CEO uh, who had um, led her organization for 17 years with like an emotional neutrality. And she walked around for the last three weeks of her tenure with a clean Xbox and cried every day. So there's some, <laughs> you know, I don't know if those were the stories you were looking for. Um, well, yeah, I think they are. I think it's real. Right. Sorry, Lisa, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to ask, so Andrea, you know, you and I, we talked prior to the show about your timeline, your transition timeline. And I, and when I looked at that timeline, and I'm going to show it up on the screen here right away, it's kind of like a, a business um, as, a, as a whole, right? A business as a whole only works as good as the pipes within it and whatever leaky faucets are throughout the business. 
is where you're going to have trouble. And so when you talk about the transition timeline and there being very specific areas within that timeline that could be the the breaks, right, where the where the leaky faucet um, happens. In your experience in this timeline, where are the positions within it that really are traditionally the leaky faucet points? And I'm going to bring that bring it up so people can see it as you talk. Yeah, you bet. So what you see here is impact on the vertical axis, time on the horizontal axis with that, that long horizontal line being full contribution. So this yeah. the curved line on the bottom is your incoming leader going up to full contribution. Um, and the uh, curved line on the top is the outgoing leader. And then a set of phases moving across from the departure decision through to you know a selection announcement into the handover period where you have uh, someone leaving and someone arriving uh, a learning curve and then up to full contribution. So a few of the soft spots um, along the way. One is absolutely um, uh, with internal promotions. There is often um, a neglect of welcoming that person into the role in the same fashion that you would uh, welcome an external leader in to elevate them into the position. Uh, and so they're not given the same uh, uh, recognition, support, um, framing, uh, it's assumed that, well, we know this, this woman, or we know this man. And so they're a known commodity. So that's often kind of, um, putting the internal promotion on the back foot compared yeah. to what an external hire would be. Another one is, um, it is very rare without, uh, engaging in a transition process like this, that people are considering an approach that goes end to end like this where you're looking at the transition pre-announcement all the way through to, you know, the person's full contribution into the role. So that's another soft spot. Yeah. So uh, Garrett, Garrett uh, uh, Rubis is my son who's uh, responsible for any good creative thing I ever do, but he suggested that we call the closing uh, uh, part of our, of these uh, uh, culture on cork there, the call them final sips. So as we take our oh. final sips, final sips, uh, as we take them, yeah, I'm gonna have a final sip. Um, why the name Roar? That's a funny name for a fancy doodle C-suite organization, Roar. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, um, thanks for the question. It's the roar of momentum, the roar of the crowd, the roar of the ocean, we know that pattern and that pull when we get things right and move in the right direction. So that's that's what roar means to us. That's cool. You play avid tennis. Yeah, so. I have way more, um, way more passion than potential, Lauren. Avid <laughs> <laughs> so, tennis player, what metaphor do you take from that game for the work you do? Oh, love it. Next point, which means focus on the next ball. It's, uh, you know, one step at a time. It's a challenging game, but uh, you have to take one careful step at a time, one point at a time. I have uh, one final question for you, Andrea. Um, it's a final sip, if you will, and then we'll close the show out. But um, one of the one of the uh, things that Lauren and I are working on is about creating this sense of belonging, right? In cultures, anywhere, anytime, any organization, big or small. And so, can you tell us a time, a story of when you either felt like you really belonged to an organization, or you didn't belong to an organization? Where you had that feeling of sense of belonging, or perhaps you didn't have a feeling of sense of belonging. Yeah, well, thank you for that. And thank you to Lauren and Lisa for all the work that you're doing uh, in belonging, because I can't imagine a greater call for that than 2020. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, so essential. So, you know, thank you for your work in, in that area. Thank I was you. working in a big firm and, um, I uh, was uh, in my late 20s considering, you know, we were considering starting our family. Uh, most of the leadership in the firm was male. I couldn't find myself there. I couldn't figure out 
where I was going to go. I couldn't see myself. Um, my choices were different. My rhythm, my energy, my approach was different. Um, I'm an early riser. I get most done before most people walked in um, the office. Uh, I couldn't imagine how I was going to um, pursue that kind of inner drumbeat in that environment. And, and they were lovely people, like, like those guys a lot. They were terrific to me. But I couldn't envision the future that I felt compelled to build uh, in that environment. And it's actually what uh, pushed me, tipped me over the edge into uh, entrepreneurship. But I have to say that every time I walk the halls at ATB, um, you know, uh, Lauren, um, you know, I just want to move in and get like a little cot in the back that no one notices I'm just hanging out there. So I, uh, despite the fact that I'm a third party, run my own business, if I can belong to um, ATB, uh, I, I think I belong there too. So both sides. Yeah, yeah, well, when I was there, and I know that because you were a lifetime family member, so of ATB, so I'm glad it felt like home for you. And Lisa, speaking at home, uh, we ought to let Andrea go back to whatever she's doing in her home and final. I'm just not out of wine, so. Yeah, thank you. Lisa, I know you want to wrap it up. You want to bring it to a close? Yeah, no, I think that's that's fantastic. Thank you so much, Andrea. It's been very insightful about some of the, you know, the challenges that are faced not only as you as an organization with the jobs that you do and, and the accomplishments that you make with the teams that you do work with, but just out in general right now. I mean, there's a lot of transition happening and there's a lot of uncertainty. And I think intentionality in everything that we do really needs to be a, a big focus of all the work that any of us do, whether we're in the C-suite or we're in like, like uh, the one gentleman said, we're in the mailroom, right? We need to be intentional about what we do and how we communicate. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. So true. And a special thanks to everyone who's with us. Uh, it's just been a, a privilege. It's been fun. Thanks, Andrea. See you soon. Bye, everybody. Bye.